Welcome to the Monday morning edition of the Daily Juice Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Peralta of bettingpros.com. It's Monday. That means we go to school. Long-form interview, long-form podcast, a 45-minute podcast about to hit you right now here on a Monday. Matthew Holt, the president of U.S. Integrity, a company that does incredible work with some really big brands, keeping everyone safe and honest when it comes to sports gambling, will join us, and he's also a heck of a UFC gambler. So we're going to break down how to bet on UFC fights, advice that he can give you as you can become a better gambler for UFC fights coming up. There's a big pay-per-view in August. We'll talk about Daniel Cormier and his fight coming up against Deepa Miocic. So stay tuned for that in a second. But picks here at the top out of the Daily Juice. So week one, 10 and three. Week two, four and nine. Week three, we went six and five. Not great because of golf and some wacko picks that didn't go our way, but hot in baseball, six and one start, 0 and two yesterday. Red Sox run line didn't hit. Red Sox lost to the Orioles. Reds run line didn't hit. They lost, and they just, it's just really kind of annoying to look at that Reds team and be like, how are you losing baseball games to the Tigers? But Tigers get the victory. Frustration. Top of the ninth, two run home run. Just a, a mess there for, for the end of the bullpen. But I still really like the Reds, in particular their starting pitching. I mean, my goodness. The Reds are K-ing batters like crazy with their pitchers, but they're also striking out a ton. They set a record for strikeouts in the first three games that was set in 1890. So it's kind of a wacko year already with tons of strikeouts, but the pitchers are also striking out a ton of batters. So 0-2 on Sunday. So let's get back after it here on a Monday. Now, at the time of taping, this is kind of the, some of the problems we're going to run into here. Teams haven't announced their starters, so the sports books don't have their odds up. And then the sports books also don't have some of their other odds, like first five and other things like that, up across the country. So certain books do, certain books don't. It's kind of annoying, but you know, by the time we all get going with our day on Monday by midday, then it's kind of time to make some wagers. So this is my advice. I've got three plays that I want to make, but I can't make them until I get all the odds. One, you could bet right now, as soon as your book opens up, you'll be able to bet at it. The other two, you got to be a little careful because of where the numbers are going to be. But let's start with the Red Sox and the Mets. The Mets played on Sunday Night Baseball, got killed, gave up 14 runs to the, to the Braves, embarrassed on national TV. That's an angry baseball team. They're going to throw Michael Waka who shouldn't be in the rotation. He's there because of Noah Syndergaard, the injury, and Marcus Stroman, so he gets the spot. Not a good pitcher. Red Sox are really mad. They lost two out of three. And come Monday morning, sports radio is going to light them on fire. Rip them for losing the Orioles, a horrible baseball team, a team that two times in the three-game series forgot how many outs there were. That's how bad it is right now for the Red Sox, losing two out of three to the Orioles. So they are hopping mad. Red Sox can't pitch. Okay, not at all. Not a lick. Can't pitch. They have a horrible rotation. What they can do is hit. And so I think they're going to hit. The Red Sox over against the Mets, even with the Mets deciding to drive to Boston. The game got over at like 10.30 after media and whatnot. They're not going to get to Boston until like 4 o'clock in the morning, going up 95 down the Mass Pike. Why they aren't flying, I have no idea, but they're driving. Three and a half hour drive. It's brutal. I've done it many times. Yuck. So they're driving. That probably will make Tuesday a more difficult run for them because I think they're going to be hopped up on adrenaline and anger. I like the over in the Red Sox and the Mets as long as it's not more than 10 and a half. Okay, if we get to 11 and 12, I probably will pass on it. But if it gets to 10 and a half, if that's where it is, 10 and a half, I- I'll play the over on the Red Sox 
in the Mets because the Red Sox bats have to come to life. I don't like Waka, and Josh Osich is pitching for the Red Sox. First time he's ever started a game in his life. Only good thing I say about that guy, he married a girl from my hometown in Andover, Massachusetts. That's all I can say about Josh Hodges. 218 career appearances, not one start. <laughs> so he's starting coming up against the Mets. Uh, and then you got Zach Godley taking over for the Red Sox probably after two innings. You know, 30-year-old journeyman. So runs, runs, runs. <laughs> I think you're going to see a lot of runs in the Red Sox in the Mets. So we're going to bet the over there, but we've got to see what that number is. Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks have this kid, Luke Weaver, who is going to be pitching for them. He was the centerpiece of the Paul Goldsmith trade. So this is the guy who they thought would be unbelievable. But last year, only 12 starts, had a sub-3 ERA, got hurt, though. Now he's healthy. Kid throws gas, 69 Ks in 64 innings last year. This kid is going to be really fun to watch. So we don't know who's going to start yet for the Padres. It's sort of a question mark right now. Joey Lucchese is a guy who's supposed to start, maybe, Big guy with a big bender. He's got a really huge curveball. But the Diamondbacks got something going in the late inning on Sunday. Came from behind. Finally beat the Padres. Got their first win of the year. I like them to keep going. I like the Diamondbacks to beat the Padres again here at Petco Park. Behind Luke Weaver making his first start of the 2020 season. But I don't have any numbers on that. Because the official starter, we're not out there yet. So I can't tell you what we're laying. I don't. I need to see it. I mean, it's like minus 240. I'm not going to lay it. But I do like it. If it can get under 2, 150, 160, I would lay it with Diamondbacks. But those aren't, quote, official plays. Because I don't have the numbers in front of me. It's incredibly frustrating right now on that. So I only have one official play on the podcast. Given where we are with COVID-19... This is going to be kind of where we are on Sundays into Mondays. Like, look at the Miami Marlins for a second. The Miami Marlins are playing tonight against the Orioles. But the Marlins don't want to fly as a team because they got four players with COVID-19. And they don't know how many more players they have COVID-19. So they don't want to fly as a unit and get everybody sick. So they're trying to figure out how they're going to do that. How can they get back to Miami being on the road in Philadelphia? How do they get back home knowing they've got COVID all throughout their team? And then who else is sick? So that's a huge problem right now for what's going on with the Marlins. I don't know. By the time we all kind of get close to game time on, on Monday night, I think the story will be a much bigger one. We'll find out exactly how many players have COVID-19 and then how the team got back to Miami. And Oh, yeah, by the way, they're flying on the morning of a game with big fears. So I'm not touching that game with the Orioles, who are coming off of winning two out of three on the road against the Red Sox. So they're flying high right now. They feel great about themselves, but... I'm not going near that game because I have no clue what the Miami Marlins are going to look like. But that's where we are with COVID-19. I mean, Mike Moustakis, right before we, we picked the Reds, like I told you, Reds on the run line. I, I thought Moose was going to play. He gets scratched right before the game. Why? He felt sick. He felt sick. I mean, this is what we're dealing with here. Like, out of nowhere, guys are going to get sick. Scratches are going to happen. And, and so we got we talked about this, you know, three weeks ago, right, when the podcast started. You have to tiptoe in here. I mean, these, you know, I, I don't mind you just betting half units here. And, you know, I'm probably going to pull back a little bit myself and I'm probably going to play half units. And, like, I'm going to recommend my one play of the day on a half unit just because right now we have to wait and see how this is going to shake out. Aside from the 60 game season, aside from, you know, not knowing what these guys are going to look like in terms of where they're working out, are they focused, no fans, how, how can they handle it? But COVID is here in a way that we knew it was going to be here. I don't know if we thought it would be this big in the first three games of the year, though, or four games of the year, four days of the year. Because, I mean, today, Monday is day five, and 
We could have the Reds with a big problem, the Marlins with a problem, and there's one other team I'm forgetting that had has a COVID-19 question. So uh, it's just not it's just not good at all right now, and we got to monitor this. So tiptoe in, go light, probably half units here for a couple of days until we figure this out, until we figure out really where we are. But as I said, look at these leans, if you will, and look at the numbers. Red Sox over against the Mets and the Diamondbacks in their game against the Padres, like D-backs to win the game. But here is an official play for us here on the Daily Juice. First five, let's talk about the Rays and a pitcher who I love. Tyler Glasnow could win the American League Cy Young. He is incredible when healthy. Last year, 6-1 with a 1.78 ERA in 12 starts, 76 strikeouts in just 16 two-thirds innings. Really dominant, really dominant pitcher. Incredible when he's healthy. Mike Fulkanavich for the Atlanta Braves has had incredible stuff in his career. Was great in 2018. He wasn't great last year. So he worked really, really hard during the offseason, during the break. He was throwing six times a week. He was very sharp in their scrimmage when he pitched three scoreless innings last Thursday. So he's in a contract year. So he needs to really get after it. Okay, Fultonavich, this is a big year for him. This is a big start for him on the road at Tampa. DraftKings has the first five set at four and a half runs. We're going to take the under four and a half runs in the first five for the Braves and the Rays. couple things to note. Tampa is 2-1 and one to the under in their first five. Atlanta was 2-0 going into tonight before they erupted for a million runs and scored a million runs against the Mets, where Atlanta also is 2-1 for the under in the first five. You're flying from New York to Tampa for this game, and the Braves have, that's the other team, the Braves, and the Braves have a COVID problem with their two catchers. So that's a concern, but I just don't think either one of these teams are going to hit all that much. First five under. First five under, minus 113 is where I saw it at DraftKings. Try to find a better number if you can on that. But under first five, four and a half runs between the Rays and the Braves coming up is our only official play, although I am calling leans if you want. Red Sox over with the Mets and the Diamondbacks to win against the Padres for us. All right, time for our long-form interview. Matt Holt is a very smart man. He's the president of U.S. Integrity here in Las Vegas. They help to keep track of all the wagers help to keep us safe when it comes to scams and things that might be going down, point shavings and whatnot. He's also a very smart UFC gambler. We talked about both those things at length on Sunday afternoon. Matt Holt here on The Daily Juice. All right, joining us now here on The Daily Juice, it's our long version of the podcast. We go to school. We like to bring on incredibly sharp people, people who have been in the industry for a long time. And our third guest here on our long-form podcast is Matt Holt. He's the president of U.S. Integrity. One, he's a Boston guy, so he's always a winner in my book, but he's a former vice president at CG Technology. He, he worked at a company which I still think had the best name ever called The Odds Father, which I absolutely love. I think that name needs to come back in some form or fashion in some website needs to start the odds father but matt holt joining us here on the daily juice matt how are you i'm great matt thanks for having me on pleasure as always yeah so the, you were one of the first people i talked to when i when I moved to vegas many 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 years ago and you know t- taking a look at what i was doing over at the venetian and the palazzo and uh now during here the pandemic this 
incredible company you launched, U.S. Integrity. For folks who might not know much about your company and how you started it and why you started it, could you give them a quick background? Sure. So, you know, I'm a former VP of business development at Tantor Gaming, which was CG Technologies. Uh, and I was the COO of their sister company, a licensed information service provider in the state of Nevada called CG Analytics. And basically at CG Analytics, we were the odds creator, uh, fraud prevention and game integrity branch of Canner Gaming slash CG Technology. And while doing that, we worked with the NFL, NHL, NBA, you know, NCA, Big 12, Pac-12, Big 10, basically everybody. And I really got an understanding that once PASPA got repealed, there was going to be a need from regulators, operators, and leagues, teams, universities, conferences, etc., for truly independent, unbiased, technology and data-driven, third-party game integrity, fraud prevention, and sports betting compliance-related services. So in the spring of 2018, I raised a bunch of money privately. You know, our largest investor is 76 Capital, which many of our listeners here may be, uh, uh, may be knowledgeable about that firm. And we started U.S. Integrity. And now we work with the NBA, the Pac-12, the SEC, the Big 12, the Las Vegas Lights FC here and huge operators like William Hill, Betfred, Monarch, and regulators in 13 different states. And I think, you know, we're the only integrity company in the entire country that actually gets real betting data from our clients. So, mm. you know, in the case of William Hill, we get every single bet placed at William Hill to analyze and, and generate reports back to William Hill from that data, as well as sending it to regulators so that regulators have a more transparent view into what's being wagered. And it's really important. Integrity is becoming a big mainstay. Most of the states uh, outside Nevada that are, are legalizing sports betting have pretty strict integrity mandates. And part of what's making those mandates work is the ability for regulators for the first time ever to actually see and investigate betting data taking place in their state independently by themselves. As much as I love the state of Nevada and as much as everybody says it's one of the most highly regulated states in gaming in the entire country, they have zero integrity mandates and basically for the history of sports betting have been 100% dependent on the operators telling them when something's wrong. But now operators nowadays are hanging massive amounts of games and props and running on thin staffs. And, you know, most of the time when we find issues in sports betting, it's not some multi-million dollar scheme that the operators are going to notice if we look at all the incidents in the last 25 years arizona state northwestern toledo more recently san diego university with brandon johnson all of these issues have perpetrators that are taking a couple thousand dollars or less and a lot of times the people making bets will go into one casino and bet nine thousand dollars and then eight thousand dollars and then another nine thousand dollars trying to stay under that ten thousand dollar federal reporting threshold and they'll do that at 10 different properties and how would each property individually know that those three bets are suspicious they don't but when a company like ours comes in is able to analyze the entire situation the abnormalities within the event as well as all the abnormalities in the wagering markets we tend to pick it up pretty quick Say I'm just a normal guy on the street, right? And, and, and I walk up to you and I say, Matt, what's the number one thing that you're concerned about? What's the number one issue that you want U.S. Integrity to be able to tackle for your customers to take care of? 
The number one issue that we deal with the most is misuse of insider information. It's just a massive issue. It's one that's not going away anytime soon. The the information flow has so much value, uh, you know, knowing if LeBron's actually going to rest tonight or if Kawhi's going to rest. And what makes this, this underground information so valuable is that it's no longer just players being hurt or now we all of a sudden we have players potentially getting COVID and players resting because they just don't feel like playing tonight for load management. There's this huge underground market for information. And much like the financial services world where somebody like Martha Stewart went to prison for uh, you know misuse of insider information and insider trading, many of the regulations in sports betting are similar to the financial services world. So that's the one that we deal with the most. The one that scares us the most is always officials and referees because in almost every single sport outside of maybe hockey, the official or the referee has the most influence over the game of any individual on the field or court of play. Uh, and thus, we tend to watch that stuff very uh, carefully, especially in how officials can affect totals. I mean, we did a study a couple of years ago, crew chiefs in college football that throw more than average amount of penalties for more than average amount of penalty yards, regardless of what those penalties are, tend to have the games they officiate go under the posted wagering totals about 65% of the time simply because it is such a disruption to the high pace no huddle offenses that everybody runs now and allows the defense to substitute so and the nca doesn't announce referee assignments so there's an underground market just for which crew chief is going to officiate the game and these huge betting groups like raz and many of these other you know large betting syndicates uh, they look for that type of information because they know oh if this official is going to ref the game then there's a much higher chance it goes under just because of the pure amount of penalties they call per game. The one area, and I, I'm not trying to blow a whistle on my my brethren here, but but on Sunday, the Marlins had a widespread outbreak, if you want to call it that, of COVID-19. Four players have COVID-19. There was one reporter, beat reporter for the Marlins, who started to put the information out there, and myself and a lot of people saw that, and we bet the Phillies on Sunday because we thought that maybe half the team might be out. We didn't know who was going to play for the Marlins. We didn't have names Phillies lost the game badly. Marlins scored a ton of runs, but you know, you, you mentioned the insider information. Is the media involved in that? Or, or do you guys have to be careful with what the media gets to find out and who they're telling before they publicly report that information? Uh, of course, and we tend to look at credible sources. So when we track what we call the first credible release of information, we try to look at people that have something on the line. They either have locker room access and that's on the line, or they work for a reputable media firm and at least that journalistic integrity is on the line because there's so much information flowing on social media alone. If you just run keyword searches and stuff for social media, you end up with so much noise on there that you have to sift through it. So it's always a challenge, not only finding, you know, that first source of information, but is that source credible? And then secondly, should that source have been disseminating the information at the time in which they did? On, well, I think it was Tuesday, we saw a hearing on Capitol Hill where it was talking about sports gambling and we saw Bill Miller from the AGA go there on a panel. And we also saw the athletic director for Pitt stand up and well, stand up, but she testified basically saying things that sounded like it was 1998, not 2020 when it comes to PAPSPA and the fact that she believes that sports gambling and college athletics is basically going to ruin the college brand. How hard is that to kind of educate the public that what you guys are doing, 
you're the reason why it's okay to have college sports gambling. Companies like yours to have the integrity to, to watch for what's happening will protect sports gambling for everybody. You know, amazingly enough, the University of Pittsburgh's one of our clients now, and hopefully <laughs> we can help educate them to what's really taking place in the marketplace. You know, it's, it's not just them, though. And to, to her credit, every single collegiate administrator throughout the entirety of their careers, many of them long distinguished careers, have been told to stay away from sports betting at all costs. They still use the 2003 don't bet on it campaign is the NCA's sort of last, you know, in most current legislation on sports betting. So it's a situation where they were, they're not supposed to know anything about sports betting. You can't fault someone for not knowing about a subject in which they were told to never learn about it and stay as far away from it as possible. So there's always an educational curve with our collegiate administrator clients to say, hey, this is what's really happening in the marketplace. This is what's really available to bet on. This is the limits that are available on those type of wagers. And here's how we're going to monitor it for you and alert you if something suspicious may occur. And I think the more educated that they get, the more comfortable they get that you know, the, the situations being monitored by the regulators, by companies like U.S. Integrity and by the operators themselves who obviously would be the most financially harmed if, um, you know, a bunch of fixings were taking place. Does U.S. Integrity have an opinion on either federal or state legislation in, in, in essentially monitoring? Do you, would you guys prefer it leave, leave up to the states or would you rather have, have a federal bill be put in place? I'd rather leave it up to the states, but at this point, what worries us, and I, I even worry here in a state like Nevada, how can a state that claims to have, you know, some, kind of be the gold standard of, uh, regulation across the country have zero integrity mandates within their state. It's time to update some of these regs. So some of these states, what's happened in states where they're trying to get legalized uh, at a time where everybody's suffering financially due to COVID and, and some civil unrest and massive unemployment rates is they're rushing to get launched, to get legal. And sometimes in rushing, they don't put the, the strongest integrity mandates in place. So I do think that it, while I would always prefer that it be done on a state-by-state -state basis, because who knows their constituents within their state better than the legislatures and regulators in that state, so I would always rather leave it up to them to handle their constituents. I also feel like there should be some standardized language for integrity mandates, for anti-money laundering mandates, for geolocation mandates. You know, all these things kind of fall in the same bucket. And you'd kind of like to see the regulatory framework of that be a little more standardized. You know, Matt, I call the offshore market the global market because it definitely exists and it obviously imp impacts the line and, and book operators are always watching each other. You know, Bet Chris is a big one that has now talked about coming onshore and becoming part of the legal wagering community here in America, which really raised some eyebrows when they thought about that. But do you see some of the global markets trying to get in just different states, try to get licensed and be able to operate in certain states in America where, you know, five, 10 years ago, that would be unheard of? Look, I. I never say never anymore. Look, let's face it. Five or six years ago, were any of us sure that DraftKings and FanDuel would ever get licensed in all these states? And then here we are now. Even Illinois, who is vehemently against DraftKings and FanDuel, just very recently licensed them within the last couple of weeks. You know, companies like Bet365, a lot of people were, you know, had some question marks. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with these companies other than, you know, there were some question marks due to the markets they operate in prior 
to as to whether they'd be able to get licensed in the United States. But FanDuel, DraftKings, Bet365, Playtech, SB Tech, these companies that have worked in global market global markets throughout the last two decades, some of which we would consider illegal or mm-hmm. illegal or illicit because they're targeting the U.S. market, are, are getting licensed in the United States. So I think as long as they could pass the, you know, the scrutinous licensing processes that these states have in place and that these states are going through the right uh, processes to ensure that these companies are doing everything in the appropriate way, then I have no problem with any of them getting licensed and operating in the U.S. And at the end of the day, a lot of these operators bring a lot of experience, Mm. a lot of wherewithal, and there's something to be said for that in a new and emerging market. One more question about where we are here with the gaming world, then I want to get to some some UFC conversations. But in terms of baseball this year and the fact that the books now are going action, they're not going to change based upon who is pitching now and the fact that COVID-19, you know, every day we may have different issues to come up with players who may or may not be able to play due to COVID-19. Just how difficult a year is this for bookmakers to have lines up for, for baseball? Very difficult. And I'll tell you, the reason that I like the action, $33 million last year, as as a lot of people may not know, there's a quarter of 1% tax, so 0.25% tax on every single bet taken by the operators. Whether that bet wins, whether that bet loses, or whether that bet is refunded and considered no action, the operators still pay that quarter of 1% tax on it. And there is no sport that ends up having more refunds than baseball. A pitching change happens. Suddenly there's a big refund on the game. The game only goes six innings and you're refunding totals and run line bets. There's already so many uh, refunds built into baseball due to rain delays and other issues that I just thought it took some confusion out of it, saved the sports book some money, And at the end of the day, it ended up being a bad customer experience for novice bettors. So experienced Las Vegas bettors very much understood the difference between listed and action and whether or not they had a bet on the game due to a pitching change or anything like that. But a lot of novice bettors don't. These guys are new. Betting never existed in their state. They walk into a casino or an establishment somewhere you know, they just want to bet 50 bucks on the game. They bet, they bet on their team and then their team wins. The next day they go to cash their ticket and find out they, they didn't win and they just get their money back. And it's a bad customer service experience because they don't really understand why. So at the end of the day, um, I get both sides of it, but I actually like the action part of it because I thought it was a bad customer service experience for the uneducated or less educated bettors who who haven't been doing it in the legal market long enough. And at the end of the day, it's going to save the operators a lot of money on refunds on that quarter of 1% tax. Would you be in favor of repealing that quarter of 1% tax that's being talked about right now? 100%. And I know that they're taking a third crack at it now. Titus, who took the first two cracks, is taking another crack now. And hopefully... The first two times she attempted it were both prior to the repeal of PASPA. Hopefully now, more than two years after the repeal of PASPA, people understand that a a law that was created in the 1950s doesn't really have any, you know, bearing or place in the 2020 regulated sports betting world and only cost operators. And the one thing I thought was really interesting is 
she did a big study to say, where does this money go? Yeah. And she called, called and called and said, where does this money go? And literally not one single person in the government could explain where that money went. And thus it just can't, you know, tended to fall into some generic pool black hole. And if the money isn't being used for responsible gaming, problem gaming, you know, better regulation, if we're not using it for gaming, then why do we even have it anymore? Yeah, that that study was pretty wild. That they couldn't tell you where the money was going. It's like, wait a minute, what do you mean? You oh can't man, tell us where the money's going? How do you how do you do that? Uh, all right, Matt, you, you are someone who is seen as a sharp, if you will, in UFC betting. You know, you've been around it for a long time. But what attracts you to UFC gambling? Why do you find it so interesting? Well, first of all, I was always a fan of the sport, and then second, anytime you can get into a market. which is still a little bit immature, it's going to create more opportunities. I think any experienced bookmaker or really experienced better would tell you that it's hard to beat the NFL long-term because there's so much liquidity. There's so much media coverage. There's so much analytics that go into the NFL that, that it's really difficult to beat. Those lines are so sharp. And while UFC has been getting massive ratings during COVID and has really taken advantage of the opportunities in front of them to grow their fan base it's still an emerging sport it still has an immature market in terms of analytics in terms of the amount of time that odds makers are able to spend putting up the odds and for that reason i think there's a lot of opportunities to take advantage of it and most of all i still think it's a sport where perception sometimes overweighs stats in terms of betting odds it's almost worse in the UFC than boxing, right? Because boxing numbers, I mean, I feel like bookmakers are more experienced booking fights for boxing. And so they know what money's going to come in. They know what big players are going to come in and lay heavy numbers because they've always laid heavy numbers. But in the UFC, it's still it's still new enough that there that there might be a chance to to grab a number that might not be where it should be. Is, 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 is that fair in terms of how bookmaking is going on in Vegas right now, or at least across the country too? A hundred percent, but it's not, if you just took the main events in UFC and compared them to the main events in boxing, then I think the odds makers are probably really good at it. The difference is boxing still, two things boxing hasn't figured out is that A, you know, people would rather bet on competitive fights instead of having one to 80 favorites on most of the fights that they're airing now. And B, that the fact that you can only bet on the main event of a boxing match of a boxing card normally kind of takes away from the wagering experience where the UFC has really done it right in terms of engaging with betting where every single fight. So this past Saturday, we saw 14 fights on the card. And while the odds makers may have a really good grasp on who should win the main event, what's expected to happen in the main event between, you know, a former middleweight champion like Robert Whitaker and a top five contender like Darren Till. And and I think they got it right in the odds, having Whitaker as a very slight favorite because the fight was super close. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to be able to know the 10th fight down on the card. You know, a guy making his UFC debut against a guy who might have fought once in the UFC. They, they don't have the time to track these guys on the regional scene put a lot of time into the matchup and because of that it presents a lot more opportunities for the really astute better when it comes to the the, the work you do or the 
the homework you do on a card? I mean, I mean, how how do you find your information? Are you watching YouTube videos? Are you talking to people that you know? I mean, how do you find the information? If I'm just starting, how do I find about somebody who might be making their UFC debut or maybe maybe one or two fights in the company history so far? I, I think you have to watch. First of all, for guys that haven't fought outside, fought in the UFC yet, you have to go watch some of their fights because you dev- you never know who's the next great super prospect like we saw with Chimeyev or who's a, a guy that's just taken advantage of really, really soft competition on a regional scene whose skill set may not translate into a UFC career as of yet. So I think you actually have to do ha- watch fights and then you have to take advantage of perceptual, you know, I don't want to say perceptual errors, but you know, the, the co-main event was a perfect example of it. Shogun Hua versus Antonio Rogerio Noguera. You know, I took the over one and a half rounds. They had fought twice before. Both fights went the distance. 75% of Shogun Hua's last eight fights, so six of eight, went to at least round three. Seven of 11 for Noguera went to at least round three. So at the end of the day, you have a situation where 70% of the fights for these two go to at least round three, yet the round total was one and a half uh, to basically pick them odds because the perception is the 44-year-old has to get knocked out in this fight. But he's also fighting a guy who's also near the end of his career in Shogun Hua, and the stats said that it probably should have been two and a half over minus 20. Instead, it was one and a half pick them just because of perception And a lot of times people like to root for knockouts, boxing or MMA and main events, especially. So since COVID started, I think we've had what, 10 cards or 11 cards and only one of the main events thus far has gone under Figueredo, um, his submission win over Joseph Benavides. Every other main event has gone over the posted wagering total. And a lot of times guys are in main events because they're exciting because they win big fights, because they've had flashy knockouts. But when you get to the most elite level, fighting the most elite guys, they're also good defensively and understand some of the things you're trying to do. And there ends up being a lot of value. The over four and a half rounds this past weekend in the main event was plus 125 when I played it. Yet four of Darren Till's last five wins, four of five, 80% of his last five wins came by decision. Robert Whitaker's last two wins came by decision and he had a a surgery on his knee after a torn MCL. I mean, the fight never really pointed toward there being an early knockout, yet the perception was these guys are both strikers, so it has to be a knockout. And of course, it ended up being a very technical kickboxing match, as we thought. So sometimes it's just a matter of ignoring the noise around you and looking what the stats tell you. If a guy, if 80% of a guy's wins come by decision, then that means the fight's more likely to go to decision than not. And if you get plus money that it's going to go that way, that's probably where the value lies. Yeah, I speaking of ignoring the ju- the ignoring the, the 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 noise, I got caught up in that because I kept on thinking to myself, why is the under 
you know, the favorite here. Well, why is there juice? Is it why is he under juice? I thought it was something I didn't recognize because Darren Till is a pretty boring fighter, and and I thought the only way he was, I thought it could end in a knockout until I had Till just to win because I didn't know how he was going to win. I just picked him to win on 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 plus money, and it goes to the scorecards. And I think you're right. I think Whitaker did win the fight three rounds to two, but I thought the fifth round went to Till. So I didn't barely, I, I didn't get the two of the three two of the three judges giving the fifth round to Whitaker. That didn't make a lot of sense to me. But giving the fight to Whitaker, I was okay, fine. But what do you make of judges? It's got to be the it is for me at least the most frustrating part about betting on the UFC. But but is there anything you can do about that as a better? It absolutely is the most frustrating. And I thought there was a fight on the card earlier, Carla Esparza and Marina Rodriguez, where if you looked at places like MMA decisions and most of the sharper places, uh, you know, that people give their scorecards on the Internet, as well as the live odds where Marina Rodriguez was minus 400 going into round three. Uh, and yet one judge had it 30-27 for Esparza. And I, at the end of the day, why? Because she was getting takedowns and she was on top. But the person on the bottom was the one landing all the big strikes, the big elbows that cut her up and swole her eye up. And um, so sometimes I think some of these judges are still a little bit novice. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily understand all the nuances of MMA. Oh, that person got a takedown. That must mean so much. Or uh, one knockdown must mean so much. And, you know, there's so much involved in MMA that I think some of the judges don't have the experience yet understanding all the nuances. So I always tell people, look, be careful betting big favorites because you never know when a judge is going to screw you. And at the end of the day, whether the judge did a horrible job or not, you're going to lose your bet without any ramifications. <laughs> and also, that's... And nothing you could do about it. Yeah, you brought up heavy favorites. Gustafson making his heavyweight debut, and, I mean, against Fabricio Verdum, I mean, Verdum looked really good at weigh-ins, and everybody went, oh, my gosh, I just stayed away from that fight. But I couldn't believe, why was Guff minus 330 where he had never fought at heavyweight before? It, again, perception drives a lot. So two things happened in that fight. Number one, Verdum looked the worst he ever looked physically in his career, the fight right before that against Alexi Olenek, and where he lost a, a decision to Olenek in a fight where he ate a lot of shots early. And then the one thing in that fight, not only did he look like he hadn't trained a minute for that Olenek <laughs> fight, uh, he looked as a guy who's over 40, uh, he looked really bad. Physically, he just looked slow, looked like he was a done fighter. Um, and I think people can't get that image out of their mind. And then all the reports coming out of training camp were that Gustafson was just killing it in training camp. And and I don't know that that was wrong, because I think if that fight would have stayed standing, Gustafson probably puts it on him. But again, here's the difference between boxing and MMA. If you bet a big favorite in boxing and a flash punch happens and he gets knocked down, Well, the fight stops, and he gets 10 seconds to clear the cobwebs and get back up. And at the end of the day, he'll probably get back up and rally and win the fight either by KO or just by outscoring his opponent the rest of the fight. If you get a flash knockdown or a flash submission attempt in MMA, the fight's over. I mean, you get that flash knockdown in MMA, and the guy's on you hammer-fisting your head into the mat, that's it. There is no. So you get a lot more underdogs, a much, much higher percentage of underdogs winning in MMA than you do in boxing, just because, you know, when that fluke or flash knockdown happens, you don't get the luxury of the ref breaking you up and giving you 10 seconds to, 
get up and shake the cobwebs off and get back in it. That's a, it's a great point. You get hurt. You have no time to recover, really, in, in, in UFC fighting. So we always like to hear on the Daily Juice, Matt, we always like to try to get some some inside information into the brain. How do you go through things and how do you how do you process your information? What's the biggest mistake that you've seen from gamblers when they're betting on the UFC? What's the, the one mistake that you see everyone that makes that they do it? I think it's really betting on the guy's last performance. And so last performances in MMA rarely mean that much because styles make fights so much and people fall in love with sexy knockouts. Um, you have to break down each fight individually. And sometimes it's not just the matchup of the fighter, but the motivation of the fighters as well. And, um, and, and there's a lot that goes into it. There's a fight that I wonder about next week. So in this coming up card, we have Vicente Luque in the co-main event yeah. taking on Randy Brown. And I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why a fighter with the resume of Vicente Luque, who's ranked, I, I got the fact that he fought Nico Price because it was kind of short notice and it was the first COVID card and they had such a great fight the first time. Why not put one on for the fans? But at this point in his career, why in the world is Vicente Luque fighting an unranked fighter for the second straight time when this guy's probably literally two fights against ranked fighters away from a title shot? So that one doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I'm a little nervous about the motivation because when I compare those fighters, I think Vicente Luque should probably be like minus 400. <laughs> um, but I wonder, again, why is he fighting an unranked fighter for the second straight time? And what about no crowds at UFC events? Have you seen it? Is it any different? Is is the sport being judged any differently? Or are we just because on TV it doesn't? I mean, I forget the crowd's not there on TV, but... From a betting standpoint, has it made any difference? I think it's made a huge difference, and it's made a big difference in decisions. And one of the things we've noticed is that guys that throw big whooping shots and hard kicks where it lands on the top of their foot and not the inside of their foot um, tend to get the benefit of the doubt with judges. Think back to Dan Ige versus Edson Barbosa. There's been several occurrences of it where it doesn't really matter where these punches or kicks land. Um, when you throw those big whooping punches, what do they do when they hit? They sound loud. You know, they have this big clapping noise to it, yeah. and the optics and the audio in an empty arena it echoes. And you can't help but think to yourself, boy, that must have been a big shot. I remember Dan E. gave her said to Barbosa. Barbosa literally almost finished him in the first and the second round. Yeah. Yet there was something about Ige's shots that were louder. And then the other part of it, and, and I don't ever think it's intentional, and I caught a little bit of heat on social media for this before, but I do think the announcers are having an impact on a judge. Amen. Just imagine a boxing match where yes. you have a Hall of Famer like Roy Jones Jr. or somebody sitting next to you, and you're this judge, and the round's really close. And the Hall of Fame boxer sitting three feet away from you where you hear every word he says is vehemently saying, boy, this guy won that round. What a clear round for this guy. You can't tell me it doesn't influence that judge. And we're seeing it now. We've seen it in so many fights. And it's not happening in every fight. But in a lot of fights, you wonder, hey, you have you know Michael Bisping or whatever commentator 
um, you know, screaming, oh, this guy won the round. What a fight. It's a, it has to be 1-1 one, one now and or has to be 2-0 this guy. And you're thinking, wow, um, you know, I wonder how much of an influence that had on the judges. And at the end of the day with MMA, it's also about camera angles. I know personally from attending over 30 fights in person that when I go in person, I tend to have different scorecards than the people I really respect that are watching it on TV. Why? Because we get better camera angles on TV. You have cameras from almost every single angle and no obstruction. And say what you will, I have been on the floor at many UFC events. The cage can be an obstruction, the cameramen, all the stuff right in your way. Even if you're right there next to the cage, the cage itself does, you know, cause some types of obstructions. And then there's times when the fighters, just because the angle they're on, you can't really get a great view of the, of the opponent. Why don't they put a judge up in a booth? Yeah, it's true with replay. Give him yeah. the advantage. Yeah. yeah, not to replay it, just to give him the advantage of watching the fight live, A, without the commentator sitting right next to him, influencing him, but B, sitting there with the best camera angles there are possible. Think of how we have replay and everything else in all these sports now. Why wouldn't you want to give the judges the best angle possible? And I hate to say it, the best angle isn't looking up from the floor through a cage where one fighter or the referee or so many different things can obstruct your view. It's watching it on a screen with the best TV Best TV cameras and high-def cameras that money can provide, getting the very best angles so you can see everything that's really happening in the fight. Uh, Matt, one more question before I let you go. I really appreciate your time here on the Daily Juice. The next pay-per-view card we have will come to Vegas, back to the Apex. It's Stipe Miocic against Daniel Cormier for the third time. It's the fairway farewell fight for, for D.C., the Apex has a five-foot-smaller octagon than what we normally have, what we saw over on Fight Island. With those two big heavyweights losing that space, does that impact that fight at all, and, and could it cause one fight to go one way or the other because of the lack of space? Yeah, I think it's almost, at this point, you're almost assuredly to have the fight end inside the distance. And maybe you wouldn't have other, you, you would have had it end inside the distance regardless as, at this point, uh, both of their previous fights ended in knockout. But what we saw in the smaller cage when they hosted those cards at the Apex this year was a lot more finishes than we did in the traditional 30-foot octagon. And, it, and on both sides, it wasn't just knockouts, but it was also submissions because guys had less room to escape the really elite wrestlers and grapplers. And it it just forced more engagement. So the power punchers had a better chance to land because there was less room to circle around. And the wrestlers had a better chance to get the fight to the ground because there's more engagement force between the two fighters. So I I would definitely tell fans and I think, and betters and I think odds makers have done a pretty good job of adjusting already but you certainly get a much more significantly higher finish rate in the 25-foot octagon in Vegas at the Apex than you do in that standard 30-foot octagon that they've been using. By what you just said, do you think Daniel Cormier gets the advantage because of the octagon size? No, I don't. I I just think that the under has an advantage because Mm -hmm. I think at this point in their career, they're both a little bit prone to knockout. So, I mean, Daniel was always known for his tough chin until John Jones ended that. But now he's been knocked out in, you know, what, two of his last four? I mean, Jones knocked him out. He had a couple fights and then he got knocked out by by uh, by Myotic. And on, on the other side, Myotic certainly hittable too. 
especially at his advanced age. These are both older fighters. They don't move as fast. The defense isn't as good as it used to be. I think it's going to be who lands first with a big shot because I'm not sure that either of them can take big shots anymore. As we see when fighters tend to get older, while they still maintain that power late into their, their careers, rarely do they maintain that same chin. And in the smaller one with two guys that can really bang, uh, it's hard to see this one going more than round two or three. He is Matthew Holt. He's the president of U.S. Integrity. Definitely give him a follow on Twitter at Matthew Holt USI on Twitter. Matt, thank you for the time. This was a ton of fun. Really appreciate you coming on today. Thanks, Matt. Best of luck. Take care, my friend. All right, that's going to do it here for the Daily Juice on a Monday. Thanks to Matt Holt again for coming on the program. My name is Matt Peralt. You can follow me on Twitter at Sports Talk Matt. We'll have some more plays coming up tomorrow on baseball, I'm sure. Six and three so far in the year. We're going to hope to keep it going today. Just one play officially, like I mentioned, the first five under for the Rays and the Braves coming up tonight. And let's see where those numbers are for the Red Sox and the Mets and then Diamondbacks and the Padres as well, like the D-backs to win and the Red Sox over. We'll see if those leans can come in with some decent numbers, but they aren't official plays because we don't have the stats that we want, the numbers that we want here at the time of taping. So we're back on Tuesday morning. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Podcast wherever you get your podcasts Tuesday morning for the Daily Juice here off of bettingpros.com.